Welcome back, everybody, to the International College of Integrative Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Luke W. Russell, and I am joined by Dr. Pittman. Um, Dr. Pittman, thanks for uh, sitting down and chatting with us. Great to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about your practice? Uh, so I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I opened my practice in 1994 uh, in integrative medicine. I had a background in biochemistry and nutrition and really felt like this was the way to go after several years of emergency room mm -hmm. work, which is very unsatisfying. <laughs> and uh, I, my original interest was, it was broad in terms of overall nutritional health, understanding detoxification, heavy metal toxicity. Uh, I, I'm certified in chelation therapy mm -hmm. for treatment of heavy metals. Um, in 2000, uh, for better or worse, I got sucked into working with patients with Lyme disease. Okay. Uh, many very chronically ill patients who had been to many different doctors. We began realizing this was a bigger issue in North Carolina around that time period. Uh, recognizing that for many patients, if we could take care of their nutritional status, yeah. we could help their gut heal, we could uh, focus on detoxification and immune support, many people would get better, but there was always a subset that something was missing, and we began realizing it was these chronic persistent infections. Uh, so I got very involved in that and still am uh, now for about 18 years. Um, in addition, I've also been working with cancer patients for quite a long time. I did training with Dr. Reardon back in 2004. Mm -hmm. um, been using high-dose vitamin C therapy since then. And of course, today's conference is, is all about cancer. So this is an area that uh, unfortunately is taking up more of my practice uh, because it's just become so much more prevalent. Uh, and and uh, connecting to that is also my work with thermography, mm -hmm. which is the use of infrared uh, of, of imaging to look at yeah. the body and pick up areas of abnormal heat. This can be very helpful in uh, giving clues to potential problems, particularly uh, breast issues as well as mm -hmm. other head and neck and, and uh, extremity issues as well. Um, I, I feel like I have a few questions mm -hmm. I'm following that. One, um, I want to jump on the thermography thing real quick. Uh, for, for any, you know, integrative uh, leaning physicians that aren't using thermography, because I know not everyone is, um, what would you say to them as to, like, why maybe they, they might want to check into thermography for their practice? Well, thermography is, is a really good tool for, for revealing information. And we're still learning exactly what that information means. Mm -hmm. You don't really know what it means until you are in front of the patient, looking at them, talking to them, uh, recognizing, saying, you know, here, here's a hot area on this part of your body. Yeah. Now let's figure out what's going on underneath there. Uh, it can be a lot of things, but it'll show you something you may not have seen any other way. Um, and in the case of breasts, one of the things that we're always wanting to be sure people understand is this is not a substitute for mammography. Yeah. Uh, it is different information about the physiology and health of the mm -hmm. breast. And while it may give information for cancer, it's useful for so many other types of breast conditions as well. Yeah. Uh, the, the professional organization that trains this is the American Academy of Thermology. Uh, I've been a member there for the last six years and they have great conferences every year. Anybody who wants to learn about it and try to become a certified physician, that's the group to get involved with. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, with on Lyme disease, you mentioned you found that was something prevalent in that in, in your state at that time period. Is that something you've continued to see much of? Is that 
where, where's that kind of gone? Well, it, it's becoming more and more what I do. Um, it, it, it's about two-thirds of my practice Oh, now. wow. Uh, I've worked real closely with some fantastic physicians around the country. Uh, being in North Carolina, we were told there's no such thing as this in the <laughs> South. Uh, we've been, and yet it's been documented in our state since 1991. And so um, in 2000, I was taking my cat to the veterinarian. Uh, she pulled me out in the waiting room uh, and said, I have been so sick with Lyme disease. I've had to find a doctor in New York to treat me. Oh, wow. And I'll bet a bunch of your patients have this. Uh, I'm going to hook you up with people at vet school to teach you about it because human doctors don't know anything about it. And she was absolutely right. Wow. And North Carolina State University Veterinary School um, had incredible resources there to help me learn about it. And then I got involved with a, a, a physician in North Carolina, Dr. Joe Jimsek, who is a Lyme disease, infectious disease specialist. Uh, he was doing all the patients just about in the area with me. He was handling the antibiotics, I was handling everything else, all the natural yeah. and nutritional therapies. And uh, many people who practice Lyme disease do have some issues with uh, the politics of this, and uh, Blue Cross didn't like what he was doing, and pretty uh -huh. soon the medical board didn't like what he was doing, and so he went to Washington, D.C., and there I was standing with nobody to help me. Uh, I immersed myself into it even more, got involved with doctors in New York, uh, particularly Dr. Richard Horowitz, who's one of the top integrative Lyme physicians. Uh, and with that additional training, felt confident to be able to do this work, and now we have a pretty steady supply of patients as a result. What we're recognizing is Lyme disease really is just the tip of the iceberg. This is actually multi-chronic infectious disease, uh, which is due to many different organisms, and this is all about digging in and finding all the various things that may be triggers of these types of chronic inflammation. Um, and one other area I want to bring up here uh, as you deal with these complex patients, you've got to dig through and try to figure out all the triggers to their problems. And now we're dealing with mold toxicity. Wow. Mold yeah. has become a, a big important area, recognizing that so many people have been exposed to water damaged buildings. Um, and black mold will outgas toxins that can be inhaled, which can get into your bloodstream. Uh, can get into your tissues, into the nervous system, and stick there for years. Yeah. Even if the person has left the source of mold, yeah. and these mold toxins are basically triggers of inflammation, much like the chronic infections. So you can have a patient coming in with 50 different chronic, uh, uh, symptoms, and uh, you say, well, a lot of these things look like tick-borne infection, but they also could look like uh, mold biotoxin illness, and now you've just got to use all your abilities to try to sort it out. And many of them have both. Uh, so you're yeah. having to work not only on kill off in terms of getting the infections, but on clean out in yeah. terms of how to do the detox effects. Yeah. Wow. So for physicians listening in and, and thinking about Lyme disease, mold infections, and, and this whole host, um, what, but particularly within like the Lyme disease realm, for a physician who um, is maybe less familiar, where would you recommend, like, maybe some things that they should be looking out for to say, like, oh, this is the path I need to go down um, to recognize that? Well, we, we've, we've got several layers of that that really present many complications for providers. 
Um, the first is that there is a political bias against the, the recognition of chronic tick-borne infections. Um, this is based on such small number of studies that have really mm -hmm. supported this. Um, because the studies for treatment in terms of recognizing how do you treat these people? Uh, well, back in the 80s and 90s, back up in the New England states where this really started, um, there were just family physicians, internists who were just trying to help patients. And they said, you've got an infection, here are your antibiotics. And they realized, uh-oh, you come off the antibiotics, you go backwards. And so they kept putting them on the antibiotics yeah. and they kept staying on longer. And they would get better, uh, but as soon as they came off, they would regress. Hmm. Uh, we began recognizing that there's, there's a problem here, that their immune system was not learning how to recognize this yeah. infection and, and mount a response. And we've learned more techniques on how to do this. So the first step is that you've got to have physicians in your community that are at least willing to be open and look for it. Um, the problem is it's not a laboratory diagnosis. It yeah. is a clinical diagnosis, and too many doctors rely on a lab that says, negative, you don't have it, and forget about it, and don't mm -hmm. even try to figure out what's going on with their patient. Um, the latest uh, uh, Journal of Infectious Disease this past month had a new article recognizing that the standard tests that we've been using for years that are looking for antibodies don't really show you this information because wow. the bug hides inside cells. It's intracellular, it's not floating around in the bloodstream, the immune system doesn't see it, so we can't make antibodies, and the result is that it's walled off and your immune system doesn't even know what's going on. Man. The better way to pick this up is looking for the DNA, the genetic material mm -hmm. that comes from the organisms um, and now the Journal of Infectious Disease has studied an article and said that's the way to find it. The immunological tests are not accurate. So it's interesting to see that they're kind of coming back around mm -hmm. to the, 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 the recognition this is a greater problem. But uh, you, you need a good primary care, urgent care physician who has the proper index of suspicion to say this may be a problem for my patient and at least in the acute phase they treat it properly. They treat it for four weeks, uh, ideally with more than one antibiotic, because mm -hmm. we know that the organisms can have many different life cycle phases, and if you don't hit it from all angles, you may not knock it out. Yeah. A common finding I see is the patient who only got two weeks of doxycycline. Um, they got a lot better, although they weren't necessarily recovered at the end of two weeks. They come off, and within several weeks, they're crashing. Wow. And then the doctor says, well, I've treated you all. I'm going to treat you. I'm going to send you to the rheumatologist. They give them steroids. Their immune system collapses, and now they're in big-time trouble. And so we're, we're recognizing that we've got to be aggressive with this early on so we can avoid the chronic nature of this infection down the road. The International College of Integrative Medicine is a community of dedicated physicians who advance innovative therapies in integrative medicine by conducting educational conferences, supporting research, and cooperating with other scientific organizations while always promoting the highest standards of practice. Now that sounds very nice, and it is really what we do, line by line. It's, it's how we spend our time and our budget but I think the most important thing to know about ISOM is that when, when people 
are part of ICIM. They connect with each other in a very special way. They are able to find like-minded healers who can speak their language and who share their obsessive love of science. I call it obsessive because it seems like all you guys want to do is learn. And they support each other emotionally in a scene that can be quite isolating for a lot of our docs. It's great to be in a group of people who enjoys the same kind of success in a field that is not always given credit for their success. Come join us. Check it out. ICIMED.com. Could you share a couple, one or two stories of patients, just kind of like, and how, how uh, just a little bit how you relate that knowledge and how that's kind of impacted a patient's life? Well, story. probably a couple of good examples. One would be a, as I call them, the, the chronic mysterious illness patient, mm -hmm. the person who really does not have any clue what's wrong. As I said earlier, they may have been to 10 or 15 different doctors, and the joke is usually the last five are psychiatrists. Uh, and so nobody's really figuring them out. So what we try to do is really step back 10 feet mm -hmm. and look at all of this like it's an onion, recognizing that there, there's something at the center. There's probably something pretty bad there. It may be mold, it may be infections, it may be mm -hmm. environmental toxins, but you've got these outer layers that are piled up and that's where the symptoms are. So uh, example would be a patient who I've recently seen, uh, worked with her for a good number of years, and uh, she, she had multiple nutritional deficiencies, coming in with just every nutrient in the basement. And you gotta wonder, when you see that sort of thing, what's going on with their digestive system? Uh, they may be eating the best diet they possibly can, even taking handfuls of supplements, and then you do their labs and there's nothing there. So you know they have a, a problem with yeah. the weak link of the gut. Um, in this case, what we realized is we need to do intravenous nutrient replacement mm -hmm. therapies, get around that weak link, while simultaneously fixing the gut by repairing the gut wall, enhancing digestion, removing any bad organisms that are there, um, and that that often will improve their ability to sustain their nutrients once we get them up with the IVs. Uh, in this case, this patient was, was practically bedridden when we saw her, and within six nutrient IVs, she's up around doing wow. normal things, acting like a normal person, still with a lot of symptoms, Yeah. but you're starting to peel that outer layer. And so we get one layer out, and now we're in a better place. Then we go back and realize, you've got multiple infections. What's going on with your immune system? And what we discovered is many of these patients will have very low antibody levels, generally speaking, and therefore their immune system is not functional. So one of the most amazing things that I've been using in the last seven years is intravenous immunoglobulin, IVIG. This is basically a transfusion of antibodies. It okay. is taken from donated blood, um, uh, extracting all the antibodies, mm -hmm. infusing to the patients every four weeks, and it basically builds back, uh, puts back in those antibodies that they don't have. I, I tell every patient, I says, we've been fighting this infection, now we've got the, the, the NATO coming in, we've got multiple mm -hmm. armies to fight, 
And uh, that's really a turnaround for many of these patients. This patient, after much evaluation, we discovered that she was in a profoundly immune deficient state. We got her approved for IVIG, which is quite expensive, so you've got to jump through insurance yeah. hoops. And, uh, with, and, with, and the problem there is when you start that treatment, you're bringing in all this help for the immune system, mm -hmm. you actually can provoke a very strong die-off reaction. You're killing all these organisms, dumping out their waste, which generate more inflammation. Your patient isn't very happy with you at that point. Yeah. Uh, you have to really help them with detoxification yeah. to clear all that out. Um, but once you get over the hump, you start seeing them begin to lift up each month. And if we can then come in with targeted therapies for the infection, mm -hmm. um, which in my case, I use every modality I have available. I use homeopathic therapies, I use herbal therapies, and I do use antibiotics. I'm even able to provide intravenous antibiotics, which many of these patients do need who have the most severe infection. And when you can hit it from all those directions, slowly but surely you can weed out and get rid of those organisms. And if you're also bringing up the immune system, uh, everything begins to click into place. And I've had patients after about a year, year and a half on these therapies, all of their immune system markers normalize wow. and will basically say, you know, you're doing so well, why don't we try stopping the IVIG? About half of them are ready to take the break. The other mm -hmm. half say, oh my Lord, no, this is what helped <laughs> me. I don't want to give this up. But it's really amazing to see the ones that you can take off that treatment and now their immune system is wow. holding up. You can begin to pull them back on their antimicrobial therapies. Um, and many of these people are coasting along doing well and you're saying goodbye to them and sending them out the door. Wow, wow. That is so uh, so inspiring mm -hmm. and, and fascinating to hear you really talking about how this, this is really very much a multi-month long process from getting the person and you know peeling through those layers to restore their health. Well, another example would be a cancer patient. Mm -hmm. And again, this is what we're here for this weekend is, mm -hmm. is really working with cancer. Uh, the primary therapy that, that we've been discussing at this conference and one that I've worked with now for 15 years is high-dose intravenous vitamin C. Uh, everybody knows that vitamin C is an antioxidant, mm -hmm. meaning that it will gobble up free radicals, which are the little electron particles generated from infections and allergies and toxins. We're always making free radicals, and they are, are damaging to our cells. Um, and so vitamin C can reduce those free radicals in lower doses. But when you get to really high doses, and we're talking 50 to 75 to 100 grams, and keep in mind that you can only take about five grams by mouth without having diarrhea, the high-dose intravenous vitamin C is now a pro-oxidant. It is behaving like a free radical, wow. but selectively targeting primitive cells that can't fight the free radicals. Our healthy cells have, have natural antioxidant enzymes, and they'll gobble up those yeah. free radicals, but cancer cells are vulnerable, and they'll be zapped and destroyed. Uh, and so we've had patients that have had uh, extensive cancer, they've gone through complex uh, uh, chemotherapy regimens, in many cases pretty well beaten down by that, um, and they come to us at pretty bad place. Mm -hmm. Our first process is getting them built back up because again, yeah. they're so nutritionally depleted. Um, but then we start in on the vitamin C therapy, combining other treatments such as alpha-lipoic acid, vitamin K3, 
um, and these all have some extraordinarily uh, good data supporting it. Um, we've had many patients who were, as I like to say it, uh, they're on that train headed to the cliff at 90 miles an hour. Yeah. And what we start doing is slowing down the speed. Uh, it's always important that patients understand their uh, uh, what goals they have, and slowing it down is the first goal. Uh, getting it to the point where we have, have stopped it is the second, and throwing it in reverse is the third. And many of our patients um, will come in and they'll say, I've been to the oncologist, um, they told me that my cancer is progressing, but it is progressing at an extremely slow rate, and they'll generally say, uh, the oncologist told me that I'm the longest living patient with my type of cancer that they've ever huh. seen. Uh, so that's a, a really gratifying feeling to know that we've yeah. extended these people's lives. Yeah. In many cases, we've improved their quality of life. Uh, we've been able to get them to family events mm -hmm. and activities that mm -hmm. uh, they didn't want to miss and they've been able to do. Um, and for some people, it's like they're just in suspended animation and we can keep them there for quite a long time. Yeah. Oh, man. That's so neat. Yeah. You, so, you know, over your career, you've learned so much through clinical application. How do you feel like you've transformed as a doctor, as a physician, over the years practicing? That's a very good question and a, a conversation I had at dinner last night <laughs> because many of us realize that what we go through is such a more personal experience than the average physician. To start with, uh, our appointments are very long. Mm -hmm. We spend an hour, two hours with patients. These are people who are shuttled in and out in most of their office visits in 15 minutes. They don't really have a, a direct emotional connection to their care providers. Um, our staff tries to, to provide that personal touch. I only see at most five patients a day and then wow. I still have homework to do that night. Yep, yep. Um, but many of my patients have become personal friends. Um, we have the types of family connections that yeah. mean so much. Um, you know, I, I, I have patients all the time mm -hmm. asking me to come over for dinner and let's go do things with the family. And I, I think that's probably the most satisfying thing. Yeah. Uh, it's what I grew up seeing. I was very lucky to have a fantastic father who was an old country doctor. Mm -hmm. And I used to go out with him making house calls when, <laughs> when uh, back in the day yeah. when you did that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and you realize you are a part of these people's family and they, they look to you to take care of them like anybody else. And uh, I didn't have any of that in my early years of, of school or, or in, in training or in, mm -hmm. in typical medical work because it's just get them in and get them out, write that prescription as fast as you can. And what I've been able to achieve is what I saw with my father growing up, which means an awful lot to me. Yeah, that's really neat. What do you wish med students today, like if there is one thing you'd love for them, uh, you know, med students to be thinking about or know, what, what would that be? Well, the good news is more medical schools are at least trying to introduce integrative concepts mm -hmm. to, to students. And um, when I, uh, one of the amazing things that right here in, right in North Carolina was the uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill had gotten an NIH grant to have a class to a, a survey course to review all different kinds of alternative therapies and I was wow. one of the original uh, speakers in that group about 20 years ago um, and they kept that going and it's a way that is at least bringing this idea and concept mm -hmm. to those students and uh, what I really want to see though is not just 
here's what's out there, isn't this interesting, um, but here's how you really do it. Yeah. And, and there's a big difference in the kind of integrative medicine that, that a lot of um, academic places employ. Um, not that there's anything wrong with what they do, but they're, they're very much toward uh, meditation, acupuncture, chiropractic, massage, diet, all important things. But they're not getting to the biochemistry. They're not yeah. getting to the cellular level. Um, this is functional medicine. This is the way we really understand biochemistry and apply it. And it's amazing to me that we spend all this time and all these intense basic science courses learning this stuff, and then you don't really seem to apply it when you leave those classes. Uh, this is applied biochemistry, and physicians who do this work, they've got to be good in that area. And I would love to see medical schools dovetail what they're teaching them in the biochemistry class mm -hmm. and say, here's now how you apply that yeah. uh, in a treatment modality. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're dealing with a lot of therapies that are natural, that are nutritional, that can't be patented. Drug companies are not interested in doing research and promoting them. Uh, and therefore, the run-of-the-mill physician never hears about them because drug companies really are the ones that control their education. Uh, so physicians who do this type of medicine usually have a personal experience. They have something that, that wakes them up and makes them realize that the path the way they're on isn't correct. Yeah. And I dare say that 80% of the people here, that was what happened to them. Uh, it's rare for most physicians just to up and decide, I'm going to go into a field where most of my colleagues don't understand what I do, yeah. or worse yet, ridicule me or you know, put mm -hmm. me as an outcast at the community. And many of us in the early days felt that, and the good news is that's less, a lot less common now. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the education is, is moving in the right direction. Uh, everything's always 20 years behind, so we'll see where we are down the road. All right, well, thank you so much, Dr. Pittman. This was wonderful. All right, appreciate it very much.